It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Sandy Duncan episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, David Bukema. Welcome back to Muppeturgy. It's been a very exciting week as The Muppet Show has finally hit Disney+. Plus. Our first real episode, which was actually our third episode, but really sort of our fifth episode, is in your feeds. And now here we are with our second or ninth or whatever episode this is. Who knows? Doesn't matter. I'm David Levy. I'm very excited to be here with Adam Grossworth, Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson. And as mentioned, we have a very special guest star, David Bukema. David Bukema is a professional actor from Minneapolis, Minnesota, or at least he was in non-COVID times. He has worked in theaters across the country, and his last role before the pandemic was as the Dicequith family in A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. A lifelong Muppet fan, he is also obsessed with musical theater, the Great American Songbook, and birds. He watched 14 episodes of The Muppet Show the day they were released on Disney+, and now he's here with us. We are very excited. Welcome, David. Tell us a little bit about uh, your journey from there to here. I don't know how they found out, but my parents one day noticed that there was a block of The Muppet Show an hour long from 6 to 7 a.m. on Saturday mornings, and they started videotaping it for me, and I just immediately took to it. Um, so much so that when I would wake up on Saturday mornings, I would sit playing on the floor of my room until my mom came to wake me up, and I would make her go downstairs and check the tape. So, Because the first words out of my mouth were going to be, who are the guest stars? And I needed to know that to start my Saturday. It was just off to the races there. It was such a big obsession of my childhood. Another fun story is when I was supposed to be taking naps, sometime instead I would open up the window of my room and shout down at the neighbors and say, hey, do you want to hear some guest stars? <laughs> I had a little... I had a little speech impediment where I couldn't do my L's and R's either. So I would just be, you know, six-year-old me at my window saying, Wida Moeno, Quis Christofferson, Melissa Manchester. So <laughs> it was a very, very early and <laughs> obsession, and it has continued to this day, though I no longer shout guest stars from the window. Why not? I know, I could. My R's and L's have cleared up, though, so it's not as adorable. Well, we're so glad you're here with us, and let's now dive in. Adam, situate us for this episode. It was the 14th episode made for the first season, so right around the middle. It aired in New York on October 4th, 1976. Uh, I promise I'm not going to talk about what was on TV every week because it will mostly be the same, but since last week in 1976, NBC has premiered its fall lineup, and after tonight's Muppet Show, you could have watched the absolutely iconic episode of Little House on the Prairie where Nellie pretends to be paralyzed and Laura pushes her down the hill. If you know, you know. Speaking of injured blonde actresses, this week's guest star famously broke her foot while in the first national tour of the revival of Chicago. Oh, nice segue. Smooth. Good blend. Mm. David, please tell us about Sandy Duncan. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Hey, that's a new bit for us. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot that was coming. So Sandy Duncan, uh, she's someone who I have always loved and didn't really know much about it, turns out, until I started researching for this episode. If you ask yourself, why was Sandy Duncan famous? The answer is, 
it seems to be because everyone really wanted her to be famous. She had a string of either moderate successes or near misses, but people liked her so much and she she was just so gosh darn appealing that they kept promoting her and giving her more and more opportunities. So uh, her early career had some movie flops, including the Disney live action film Million Dollar Duck and the Neil Simon film Star Spangled Girl, where interestingly enough, she played the part that Muppet star guest Connie Stevens originated on Broadway. She had a failed sitcom called Funny Face, which nonetheless netted her an Emmy nomination. So by the time she was on The Muppet Show, she was really still uh, in the upswing part of her career. Uh, Her biggest triumphs were yet to come, but she already had two Tony nominations under her belt for Featured Actress in 1969 for the mostly forgotten musical version of The Canterbury Tales and Lead Actress in 1971 for The Revival of the Boyfriend. She had a lot of featured guest star appearances. She was like really good on the variety show circuit. And I think this episode demonstrates why she did a great, well, I think it's great. Some of you might disagree. Television special for Disneyland for Christmas one year where she sang and danced with just a totally random assortment of guest stars, including Muppet Show guest star Ruth Buzzy, uh, where they just did show tunes and pop songs staged in various Disneyland attractions. It's bizarre. We'll include a link. The whole thing is on YouTube. Including on the rides. It This is bonkers, and you all have to go to the show notes and at least like skim it because it's insane. Right after The Muppet Show, she had a featured role in Roots, which you might remember, for which she received an Emmy nomination. And then sort of her biggest fame came in 1978 when she revived Peter Pan on Broadway. And then from there, she just went on to bigger and better things. She famously replaced Muppet Show guest star Valerie Harper in Valerie's show Valerie when a contract dispute led the producers to kill off the title character and replace her with her sister-in-law, played by Sandy Duncan, uh, when the show became Valerie's family and then the Hogan family. You might remember her voice because she's in The Fox and the Hound with Muppet Show guest star Pearl Bailey. And she replaced Muppet Show guest star Twiggy in My One and Only on Broadway. And that's Sandy Duncan. Uh, She's still around, (laughs) still alive and kicking. She had some memorable guest star moments on Scooby-Doo. She was in an episode of the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries. And I just learned that a year or two ago in the current Scooby-Doo show, which is called Scooby-Doo plus Guess Who or something like that, uh, they did like a sequel to her episode from the 70s where she came back and and she plays herself in both of them. So that's cool. (laughs) Anyway, Sandy Duncan, she sings, she dances, she acts, and she's just sort of, well, as Fo- as Fozzie says, she makes you feel good all over. She does. Um, Peter Pan was the first Broadway show that I saw, um, and actually the last for many years thereafter. And I was really into Scooby Doo, like at the same age that I was really into the Muppet Show. So, like, she was, I think, one of like one of these stars who I just knew who she was, even though I was five or whatever. So, this episode, like, she sticks out to me for that. But this episode is not one that I really remembered rewatching it now. But I definitely feel like she was super present in the early eighties. Um, and I made that crack about Chicago, but I, I, I should say like, she did launch that national tour as Roxy, like before they were super stunned casting it. And as evident, this um, episode shows like she can really dance. They chose her to fill in ranking shoes to take that tour out. And she did eventually come and do the role on Broadway and people who got to see her say that she was one of the best people to fill that spot in, you know, 30 years of Chicago. So. Why don't you get David B., this is the point in our podcast where we just kind of talk about what we thought about this episode. And since you're our guest, why don't you go first? Well, I I was over the moon to be asked 
to join for this specific episode because this is one that I really remember from those days when my parents would tape it for me. It was one that I made them save. It was one of my very favorites. Um, and I think in large part, it's because of the opening number. Uh, Sandy Duncan doing A Nice Girl Like Me, I think is one of the best full-out production numbers that they ever did on The Muppet Show. It's just spectacular. Sandy Duncan dancing with all of these full-bodied monsters in a seedy bar, and you know she gets flipped upside down, and she kicks her leg up on a one of the, the mutation shoulders and oh it's just amazing i mean i i i like to say that that number made me gay i just love that number so so much uh, so i will i will probably talk more about that number and i will gush more at that time michael uh ditto to everything that david said i am here for sandy duncan and she's here to be charming as all get out with the high kicks and to giggle with Fozzie and to be game for getting him in the face with a pie. And I, yeah, she makes you feel good all over. So here's what I'm confused about in this episode. Kermit is going through something. Uh, it seems like either the other Muppets are just trying to make him feel like he's going insane, or this is just what his life is like every week. I think we, we have a banana sketch clip but i gotta pay my writer the legendary gags beasley why he's got a new writer gags beasley Uh, not the legendary gags beasley you mean you've heard of him well who hasn't me for one but gags beasley he is to comedy what mozart was to music he wrote the famous banana sketch the banana sketch what's the banana sketch Ever heard of the banana sketch? But it's the funniest. <laughs> Frog of my life, please tell me what they're saying about you is not true. What's that, Piggy? That oh, you, you host of a television show, veteran of the boards, you have never heard of the banana sketch? <laughs> Uh, Piggy, uh, said the frog, trying to refrain from losing his cool and looking like a bad sport. There is no banana sketch! There never was a banana sketch and there never will be a banana sketch! <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. If some, if just one person, instead of bringing Kermit down, had said, Gosh, Kermit, you're one of today's lucky 10,000. Per uh, Randall Monroe's comic XKCD, um, mathematically, a certain percentage of some number of people every day haven't heard of something and get to experience it for the first time. And he's landed on the number 10,000. So rather than say, you've never seen famous movie X, you should uh, instead say, you're one of today's lucky 10,000. We're going to go watch this movie right now. And then you get to watch them experience it for the first time. If one person had said that to Kermit, uh, then there would be no backstage story and no episode. However... Kermit wouldn't be wondering whether he's going insane and being a dick to Fozzie and to Piggy. It is possible that at other points in the episode, he would still manage to be a dick to Fozzie. That still happens. And uh, whether Kermit is in fact a jerk remains a bit of a toss up. But that's my feeling about the banana sketch. What do you guys think? My take, and granted, this is probably beyond Fozzie's ability to coordinate, but my take is that they were all gaslighting him. 
it really feels like they are fucking with him the entire this brought up some real like childhood trauma for me of like remembering kids in class doing this kind of shit like to me or to other kids where like everyone just sort of like you don't even need to decide in advance like one person makes up some new phrase and everyone acts like they know what it is and it drives you crazy and it makes you feel like everyone's getting up against you and i just wanted to i wanted to to stand up for kermit and tell them to stop bullying him we do hear fozzy from the wings we hear fozzy start to deliver a banana joke not a sketch because he's alone on stage so presumably he does actually do a, the banana sketch that we just don't get to see it which sort of takes away my my theory but then also why isn't kermit watching and then why does settler and waldorf say nice segue they they don't know whether i mean maybe they're part of the plan i don't know well that goes into our, our ongoing discussion of are the things that are happening backstage visible to the audience of the muppet show right well, it seems to exist in this surreal world where the audience is sort of omniscient and you can be in the privacy of your own dressing room and you're going to hear guffawing no matter what you do. Yeah, somebody will applaud you, even if nobody's in the room with you. That's kind of nice. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> right. Wish I had that in my apartment. <laughs> David, childhood drama aside, how did you feel about this episode? I loved the music. I did not care for the banana sketch running gag <laughs> um, because of childhood trauma. Uh, but overall, I think it's a great episode. It's one that, you know, I watched several times this week and did not get bored with it. And it, it just zips along. Like it really, it's just, it's really solid, fast and funny and great. Christy, were you traumatized? I wasn't traumatized per se, but I definitely fell on the side of Kermit's being gaslit. Like... <laughs> I, it it definitely uh, I've I had been there in grade school for sure. Yeah, I went into this episode with really low expectations, and I sort of blamed that on Sandy Duncan. And I had those expectations completely just blown out of the water because you know, like last week, I talked about the versatility and generosity of Rita Moreno and how easily she assimilates into the Muppet world. And I think all of that applies to Sandy Duncan as well. But, you know, it's funny when I sat down with my mom to watch this, she had asked me like, why, why do you know why Sandy Duncan's famous? Why is Sandy Duncan famous? And I was like, well, do you mean what made her famous specifically? Or are you asking qualitatively? And she was like, oh, well, I don't know. Like both. She was one of those people who was just kind of always on TV for a while there. And I was like, yeah, sort Yeah. Okay. And so I, I watched the episode with that in mind. And I think it's an interesting like case study in contrast with Rita Moreno because they're both charming. They're versatile, like triple threat theater energy performers. But there's a like a squeaky clean blonde whiteness to Sandy Duncan that made her an instant star. But it also meant that because of that, I underestimated her going in as opposed to Rita Moreno, who had every single award that a performer could have. And was not ubiquitous in the same way. So I didn't go in with that. I was like, oh no, Rita Moreno is going to kill it. So I, I, I guess to make a long story short, don't sleep on Sandy Duncan. <laughs> so now's the moment when we get to talk about music. Uh, so I think first we wanted to discuss uh, the season one specific theme song sequence this week. For me, seeing the season one theme song sequence was 
eye-opening because although it was on the DVDs for season one, it was not always attached to these episodes when they were shown in reruns. And it was not attached to these episodes when they were first issued on DVD by Time Life. So I sort of forgot how different it is from the theme song as it ends up. The song is the same, more or less, but the the what's happening on stage is different. It's much like smaller scale, lower rent than what we think of. So the beats are there. Like there's, you know, the the line of women come in from one side and the line of men come in from the other side, but there's no arches and there's no multi-story chorus of hundreds of Muppets. It's interesting to, to me to sort of remember how like ragtag this was at the beginning. And like the chorus of women includes Janice dressed like a French maid wearing a terrible wig. And the end sequence of it, and because they don't have those big arches, is done on this sort of ugly pastel wedding cake-like tiered stage. And there's only maybe, I don't know, 15 Muppets on it, but that's more than the number of Muppet performers they have. So some of them are just like totally dead-eyed. Haunted dolls. Yes. right, And like their arms on the end just go up like mechanically we'll we'll include a gif of this because it just uh once you see it you can't look away and it will haunt your dreams it's terrifying it's so scary even fozzy's arms move wrong because they don't have the people to work them and what yeah once you notice it it, um so look at the gif at your own risk because it will ruin you i've always sort of thought that the season one theme was very sort of seedy british music hall And that speaks to the fact that the show was shot in Britain and a a lot of the, um, well, I mean, all of the, not all of them, but many of the UK spots um, that we didn't get in America are geared towards the British audience. And so the, the whole season one, it just felt like, you know, they were in some podunk uh, theater way, way, way off the West End in the bad part of London. Yeah, being endlessly heckled. Oh, gosh, those dead-eyed haunted dolls. <laughs> Speaking of dead-eyed haunted dolls, <laughs> let's talk about Nice Girl Like You. Oh, nice segue! I'm just going to keep using that clip as much as I can. It's beautiful. So the first song in this particular episode is also the newest song to appear on the show at this point. Uh, it's the aforementioned uh, A Nice Girl Like Me, or as originally uh, written and performed, A Nice Boy Like Me. And uh, we definitely have a clip. Now you should tell me what's a nice, nice girl like me Doing by the dance floor after hours Dozing over rows of whiskey sours Feeling so So yeah, so this is a a Barry Manilow song uh, from 1975 from an album called Trying to Get the Feeling. And for contrast, we have a clip of Barry Manilow too. so funny the gender flip makes it feel like a totally different song (laughs) i love the barry manilow version too 
Oh, it's just, it's such a great song. Yeah. Uh, funny bit of trivia about the song itself. Uh, Barry Manilow co-wrote it with a songwriter named Enoch Anderson, who gave up songwriting to become an English professor at, at various LA area community colleges. Oh my God. It's like Bye Bye Birdie in real life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. And I actually, I looked him up on ratemyprofessors.com and he has a 4.7 out of 5. Uh, apparently his classes are very easy, but somebody complains that he shows too many movies. I mean, if, if I was him, I would just show the clip of Sandy Duncan doing a nice girl like me right. over and over. <laughs> I wrote this. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the delivery of the backing vocals makes a huge difference there too. Yep. Like not just the gender, like the seduction versus Muppet right. monster <laughs> threatening. Yeah. So, so we should probably talk about the actual staging of it, which incidentally in the introduction, Kermit mentions that Scooter staged it. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about this. Very Michael Bennett. Um, but it's it's Sandy dancing with, uh, so we, we mentioned the, the mutations, which they pop up in the Connie Stevens episode later, but there's like humanoid person in mask dancers. The s- same style as the Rita Apache partner. Yeah. Uh, who is also in also this there. number. Yeah. yeah, like as an extra, like as a he doesn't really dance. And Sweetums, uh, bless him, is there. So, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's in it, a bar. That's that's the other thing. This is now yeah, the second again. week in a row with an opening number set in a bar, which I, I mean I feel like is a a choice to really make sure everyone who's watching knows like this is not Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody's doing shots uh, on Sesame Street. Not that many shots. Not on camera. <laughs> I tried to count how many shots she does, and I... I oh, oh, I did. Yes, you succeeded where I failed. I have... Well, I have some thoughts. <laughs> so, where Michal is a pedant about the uh, styles of dance and, you know, whether the foxtrot in the foxtrot joke is actually a foxtrot, I am going to be a pedant about um, cocktails. <laughs> Dramaturgically, this song is a mess, um, and that's Barry Mandela's fault, not the Muppets' fault. So the lyric refers to dozing over rows of whiskey sours, you wouldn't have rows of whiskey sh- whiskey sours. You have rows of shots, which the Muppet Show is actually has, and that suits the like the the song is kind of manic. So like that makes so the lyric doesn't make sense, but then the Muppet Show staging does make sense, and especially at, at the Muppet Show tempo, which I love. Like it's it's much faster, and I, I like it actually much better than than Barry Manilow's version. But like sitting at a bar drinking whiskey sours makes sense for the lyric because the the character is really depressed, and that feels like what he would be doing. What Sandy Dungan is doing is drinking and drinking and drinking, <laughs> taking other people's drinks. And I didn't count all of them, but she says, the lyric says that she's already three drinks in when the song starts. And then she has several more. And then at one point, and yes, there will be a gif of this in the show notes, she does seven shots in a row. And I have questions. <laughs> um th- they're these very 70s brown plastic shot glasses. And like a lot of this stuff is coming back around. And a lot of times I'm going to be like, oh, I love this. I want this. I do not want these glasses anywhere near me. Um, they're, <laughs> they're empty, which fine, whatever. It's a dance number. They've seen things. They are, they are rimmed with something, which is super weird. You might rim a tequila shot with salt. This looks to be sugar. But then she comes downstage. There will be a gif of this as well. She wipes her nose goes whoo and like makes jazz hands and it really looks like sandy duncan has just done a shit ton of cocaine uh i should say sandy duncan's character because i do not want to catch this version 
So like, are they shot? Did you just do seven shots in the glasses are rimmed with cocaine? Because <laughs> it is 1976. Like I, it's plausible. I have never thought that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a lot. I love this number. I watched it three times in a row, like right before we recorded, which is maybe why I feel feel like this. But it, it's it's a lot for a quote unquote children's show. Also, she's wearing this very prim skirt suit that makes her look like she is like a bank teller or something. So, like, I I just want to know the backstory of how she got to that bar on that day. But she also has a leotard on underneath it, and that then sort they, of fits the that kind of fits the yeah, lyric they, to me. They then rip she goes the skirt and, off. Yeah. Then they rip the skirt off, and she has legs for days, right? And she's you know, and she's doing the dance. I mean, that that's part of what I love about it. Good job, Scooter. Yeah, in her in her <laughs> leotard, fresh from Capizio. Yeah, she's ready to go. It's really interesting to look at this in contrast with the Rita Moreno bar number. And I was trying to figure out, is it because they're sort of different generations of performer that the energy is so different, that the style is so different? Or is it because the Rita Moreno number was a Jillian Lynn number and this was a Norman Maine number and the two choreographers are so different? I mean, it's not just that the songs are very different, but like the energy is very different. The The sort of athleticism I mean, they're both very athletic numbers, but it's a different kind of athleticism, right? It's like the difference between sprinting and cross country. The difference between cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and there, you know, the the Rita Moreno uh, number is all about physical comedy. And this uh, number is just full out song and dance, you know, meant to be just entertaining in, in that respect, I think. For all that she's doing, at least 15 shots in the course of the number, she never plays drunk. And like, actually in the, in the Rita number, like she doesn't really play drunk, but the dancer does or like drunk or hit over the head with a wine bottle. Right. But there's a lot of that kind of like wobbly dancing as part of the shtick. And in this, like she is peppy again, it's the Coke, but like she is, she is peppy the entire time. And I think that's part of Sandy Duncan's brand that like actually comes up a lot in the episode that she is like, just perpetually perky and it it works with this song and it works with the song at this tempo and it's very disco and i i really enjoy that about it even if it doesn't make dramaturgical sense it's really fun to watch so i want to talk about the mutations well it seems like in the the connie stevens episode i was guessing that those must have just been muppet performers wearing mutation heads and not having any dance training and having to just kind of sway back and forth and spin around and slap the floor. Whereas these are definitely dancers under those costumes. I, If I were Sandy Duncan, I don't think that I would trust uh, Jim Henson and Frank Oz to toss me around and catch me and flip me upside down. But uh, those guys knew how to toss and catch a Sandy Duncan. I don't know who they were because I don't think we have specific notes about who performed them in which episode. Uh, David Bukema, it seemed like you had... Some additional wisdom here. Well, I was I was going to say that the mutations are um, their mouths don't move, and there there are uh, there are a few groups of full bodied Muppets throughout the series that are basically just there to dance, and they don't have working mouths, and that includes the the trolls that come along in the fourth season, and they get used in the fifth season as well. There are those creepy bird dancers that Liberace mm-hmm. uses and Leo Sayer too. But I, of, of those 
three groups. I like the mutations the best because they look really Muppety with the purple fur and the orange hair and the fact that they are in the next season when they redo the theme, they are so much a part of that opening shot with the other full-bodied monsters that that in a way sort of makes me accept them as, oh, they're buddies with Sweetums and Thog, so they must be okay. Yeah, the, it worked for me. I know the the Rita dancer is not a mutation, but it's the same style. And he doesn't speak or sing, so it didn't matter that his mouth didn't move. And in this, they're so active that I didn't really notice. I did notice that they have voices, right? There are, there are backing vocals on that track that I, I think we're meant to take that they are singing, even though their mouths don't move. And, you know, I noticed because we're doing a podcast and I'm paying attention, but I think that there's so much going on in that number that I wouldn't have really noticed if we hadn't already had a whole conversation about how we didn't like them in the Connie Stevens episode. I also noticed they're wearing a lot more clothes in this uh, scene. So, like, they they have more bulk and they look more like a Muppet instead of, like, a leotard with a head. And I think that really helped sell them to me. So, I also think that in the late 70s, we might have been more accepting of a performer in that kind of a costume with a mouth that doesn't move. Because if you think of, like, the characters at Disneyland, thinking of Sidney Duncan's uh, special that she did at Disneyland, or or even what Sesame Street Live looked like in the 80s, like, they also, like, there was, like, a whole cottage industry of people wearing these kinds of costumes and performing, and, and we didn't expect their mouths to move, and we didn't expect any kind of lip sync. I was on YouTube this week looking at more recent Sesame Street Live clips. I don't know why. Why not? <laughs> it's the rabbit holes that this podcast leads me down. And and in more recent versions of it, they now have full body costumes like this where the mouths do move. And 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 on the one hand, like it was very enchanting, and on the other hand, it was like I, I felt like a little piece of my childhood was now gone forever. Um, but but I do think that that maybe our expectations and it's probably honestly Jim Henson's own fault for getting there with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and that technology uh, that makes us now expect more from a, a character like this. But you know, in a world where we had never seen the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I don't know that the mutations would have struck me as weird in that way. The mutations didn't bother me that much in this episode compared to the Connie Stevens. It's just them backing her up against like a light blue solid background. So you don't have, your eye doesn't go to anything else. Whereas this is a full bar set and Sweetums is sort of the ringleader. So I, my eye goes to Sweetums before it goes to anybody else there. Cause we're hearing Sweetums voice. So Sweetums has a mouth that moves. <laughs> yes, he, he absolutely does. The interesting thing about, uh, Sweetums in this number, though, it's Jim Henson. Jim Henson does Sweetums one line in A Nice Girl Like Me, and I have no idea why. I don't know if Richard Hunt wasn't available or something, but it's the only time on the whole show that Jim Henson voiced Sweetums. Huh. Today I learned. So now let's talk about this episode's UK spot. I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, and let's just play a, a clip of the version in the show. I ain't never done nothing to nobody. I ain't never got nothing from nobody. No time. And 
until I get something from somebody sometime. I don't intend to do nothing for nobody, no time. So, uh, this is Gonzo, uh, backed by Ralph, um, singing Nobody, which is a song uh, from 1905, written by Burt Williams and Alex Rogers. Burt Williams was a very famous uh, vaudeville performer, part of a, one of the most famous uh, minstrel duos of all time, Williams and Walker. And uh, Burt Williams performed in blackface. He, he was a, a black man, but he performed in blackface. And um, this song was from a show called Abyssinia that uh, was a, a Broadway show that uh, was very ambitious and serious. Like it, it was written by black performers. And even though it interpolated minstrelsy, it was sort of a, like a plea for legitimacy. And so this song was the centerpiece of it and, and it became Burt Williams's signature number. And what's interesting about it is, you know, between 1905 and the 70s, the song kind of slipped into jazz standarddom and lost this context a little bit. I, I found a clip of Carol Burnett doing it. I think we've got that. So it's interesting to me that the song was in popular consciousness just as a standard at this point uh, and had even been done by the Muppets before Uh, Ralph and Jimmy Dean did it uh, before this. And we've got a clip of that too, I think. If you don't have a dog and life seems full of clouds and rain, and I am filled with naught but pain. Who soothes my bumping, bumping brain? Who does? Nobody. And the thing is, the song is so sort of sweet and sad, absent the context. But when you know the history of it, it's something completely different. And I just find myself wondering if the Muppet team knew the history of it and were trying to make a statement with it just because Gonzo is a character whose arc is about being othered and about not fitting in. And I have really complicated feelings about it because context is everything and context is nothing in a show like this. Uh, I don't know. Did anybody else have any thoughts about this? Well, when I stumbled on the Jimmy Dean clip, and that's actually Rolf's very first appearance on the Jimmy Dean show, I brought it to the rest of this group on our Slack and said, wait a minute, is Rolf a blackface character? Like, Because it really read that way to me, because I only know the song in the context of Burt Williams' signature song, et cetera, et cetera, although I do own that Carol Burnett album. Um, so it did, it did play that way to me, but I don't think it... I think it had lost that connotation for 
a large part of the 20th century and it's really only in the last however many years that a we've we've come to a place where we've sort of tried to restore context to african-american music that had lost a lot of his context and um for example there was a great article that went viral a year or two ago about a song i've been working on a railroad and how that also has its roots in minstrelsy and how it probably should not be taught as a delightful children's song anymore because that's really not what that song is about you know the more that we learn about things like that the harder it is to hear songs like this and not think about the context and not think about is this really an appropriate way to to present this song that said for the reasons you stated it works for me better in this context of gonzo singing it like without greater context than Rolf and Jimmy Dean doing it as part of like a comedy bit. I don't know. I, when I was, when I was researching for this episode, I also found that Dr. Demento had included this number, the, the original Burt Williams version of it on a compilation that he did of like early novelty songs. And I just, it's so weird. Like I, I, after I saw that, I went back and listened to it again and read the lyrics and I was like, okay, I get it. I get why this fits as a novelty song, but it just feels I don't know. That feels so reductive and so not what I hear. But also, like, if we hear the song and only hear like Black Pain, are we missing the point in a different way? Yeah, a lot of the the scholarship that I I read in digging into the history talked about the intentional duality of the song of of the 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 pain you know being present in the text, but also there being an element of comedy and an element of you know, assimilation to a certain extent. So, yeah. It it is really interesting that they chose Gonzo in particular to sing that song. And it also kind of ties in with his season one character, which is very downtrodden, very depressed. I don't know if I could see like season five Gonzo singing this song. It's, It's very much a season one when he was so downtrodden that I think it would work best for that character. So on a much more cheerful note, <laughs> uh, we have a clip of our next song. I'm imagining how well you fit within my skin. Never smile and look at the dial. Never tip your head and stop to talk a while. Never run, walk away, say goodnight, not good day. So definitely a song that was intended for children. This was uh, Never Smile at a Crocodile, which uh, originated as an instrumental theme in Disney's Peter Pan in uh, 1952. The music was written by Frank Churchill. It was given lyrics after the movie uh, by Jack Lawrence. And Frank Churchill actually wrote the music in 1939. And then it took about 10 years for Peter Pan to be made. And uh, Frank Churchill actually died before it actually got made. I keep bringing it down. I, I keep. <laughs> it's a sad trivia week. Man, Christy. <laughs> I mean, it is a song about murder. Yeah, and the show's forty years old. This is going to come up a it's lot. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah. But it's it's also sort of funny because of the um, the Sandy Duncan Peter Pan connection, even though it's not the right iteration of Peter Pan. And Adam, I, I know you had some uh, Peter Pan feelings. <laughs> well, I I mean. Just uh, since uh, since we are on Disney Plus and we are in no way sponsored by Disney Plus, I know um, some of the Muppet Show episodes actually have a, a, a warning in front of them about um, 
content that has not aged well. When Disney Plus first came out, I embarked on a project to watch all of the animated features, the pre-Beauty and the Beast animated features, so from Snow White um, in chronological order. And boy, is Peter Pan racist. Like, wow. Just, and I was like, I was ready for... um, for Dumbo. I would like, I was prepared. I, I, I was expecting certain things and I just was like, I was, I, I know that Peter Pan is inherently racist because I've seen the Broadway musical several times, but I was not prepared for the ways in which this Peter Pan is racist <laughs> on top of the ways that the story is already racist. They made artistic choices in addition. So I will just leave it at that and move on to say, boy, is the crocodile cute <laughs> in this, in this Muppet number. The frogs that we love so much in the Valentine special um, are back. Um, I learned that they were made for the frog prints originally, and they have been used consistently in Muppet stuff throughout uh, into the 21st century. Um, at one point, the little girl you heard singing is, is riding the crocodile, and at one point there are two frogs in the crocodile's mouth, and I was just thinking about like the puppeteering of that, that there are four, possibly five people like squished together to make that happen. And it, it, I really um, got a kick out of this number, even though I find the song sort of tedious. And one of those people squished in there is uh, Tony nominee, Peter Friedman. Tata. <laughs> yeah. That blew our minds on Slack. Yeah. When I read that, I actually texted a friend of mine who is a, a writer who has written shows that Peter has been in. I was like, did you know this? He's like, Peter never talks about his past, but I guess that makes sense. I knew he was in London in the seventies. Like <laughs> Wild. Yeah. He, he did a, a handful of episodes in the middle of season one. And then another handful at the beginning of season three. And it, it I remember when I was a kid and I listened to ragtime for the first time, and I was looking at the liner notes, and I knew the name Peter Friedman from The Muppet Show. And I was like, holy cow. And he was the dad on that great show in the 90s, Brooklyn Bridge, with uh, Marion Ross as the grandmother. I love that show. He's yeah, anything that, anything that shoots show. in New York, any, any Law and Order, he'll he'll pop up on those all the time. Um, but yeah, and it's, you, you can tell he's a real singer in that clip, as opposed to, I mean, The Muppet Performers are good singers, but like... He has chops that they don't have. The little girl who you heard in that clip is um, primarily a Muppet builder. She does not typically perform, um, but she, uh, I was just found it notable that they got a second woman for this episode because that's actually super rare. Um, her name is Raleigh Cruson, um, and she does perform periodically. But she, according to the DVD, she was still working in Henson Workshop as of 2005 when the DVD was produced. I couldn't, I couldn't find an end date for her her employment, but um, she does seem to still be alive and was still working well into the 2000s um, in Henson Workshop. And I, I kind of love that little fun fact as well. So the last number in this is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's Try to Remember from The Fantastics, music by Harvey Schmidt, lyrics by Tom Jones, The Fantastic. Oh, and I should say not that Tom Jones, if you're not a musical theater person, uh, <laughs> an American person named Tom Jones. The Fantastics is the longest running musical of all time. It ran for 42 years from 1960 to 2002 off Broadway. And I found out that the original investors recouped their investment 240 times, which is bananas. Uh, it's uh, a very sweet simple setup of a number it's uh, sandy and kermit sitting in a field of flowers and she's holding his hand and it's very tender and uh which is very apropos for the song and at a certain point she's joined by a group of backup muppets that includes uh, a lot of our favorites including some of our cleveland muppets uh george 
uh, Scooter, Zoot, Droop. We, we stand Droop uh, and uh, Gonzo. And we, ha- we have a clip of the point at which they join her to sing back up. the willow. Try to remember when life was so tender That dreams were kept beside your pillow Try to remember when life was so tender It's hard for me to talk about this without getting emotional. Um, Yeah, (laughs) even just hearing a few seconds of that song. (laughs) Yeah, It's the absolute best. Yeah, the the, the song uh, hit the charts three separate times in 1965, I found out. And um, I mean, it's been recorded by everybody from Liza Minnelli to Josh Groban to the Kingston Trio. There must have been some major Kingston Trio fans in the Muppet writer's room is all I can figure because they have figured into our (laughs) findings quite a bit. And also there's some weird uh, Disney Plus synergy because uh, try to remember pops up in Captain America Civil War. As much as I gushed about a nice girl like me earlier, I love try to remember in, you know, maybe just as much, but in a totally different way. And I think that speaks to Sandy Duncan's versatility because that first number is so athletic and so dynamic. And then this is so simple and so sweet. And she sells this ballad so well. And then just the motley group of of Muppets that come to back her up, I was obsessed with as a kid. You mentioned Droop. I always love a Droop sighting. Whenever there's Droop, I'm happy. Uh, It's just such a sweet, sweet number. I also just love that when they had to assemble a chorus for this, it wasn't like, okay, let's just get 15 pigs. It was, you know, here's a couple humans, here's a couple recognizable humans here's a couple whatnot humans here's a couple frackles here's uh, like it It was really a yeah, mix Baskerville of, and everybody right, Muppy yeah. is in there Muppy who appears to to sing and be able to create <laughs> words um but I I do love that it's it's just this total mix of like any kind of Muppet can be part of this chorus and and it and you're not supposed to read that as anything other than like normal because the Muppets are a group that's made up of lots of different kinds of people. I also give a lot of credit to Jim Henson here because, you know, like they say, acting is reacting and Kermit doesn't sing in this. Kermit just sits and listens. And, you know, Michalis has made the point that, you know, there's so much expression in that tiny scrap of felt. And it's just, just watching Kermit take it in is half of why it's so moving to me. And have we seen this sweet a Kermit at this point? like and anywhere in a Muppet performance? Because we're, we're used to thinking of Kermit as this uh, sweet, pensive character m- from the movies. But had that even happened? He's just, yeah, like you said, sitting there taking it all in. I, I have a, a second question while we're thinking about that. If you're Kermit and you're sitting on Sandy Duncan's lap, where is Jim Henson and where is his arm? I, this is what I was going to say, because, you know, for <laughs> as, as much as I appreciated, like, the sort of... I don't know if athleticism is the right world, but with like the, the 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 technical trickery of the crocodile scene, I equally appreciated like the technical simplicity of this scene where he's on her lap. And I actually had a moment where I thought, is that a fake leg? Because it's like when Kermit sits on a log, <laughs> and of course it's of course it's her leg. And I think he's just behind her, right? I think that 
Hey, now, 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 listen. People say Sandy Duncan has a fake <laughs> eye, and I will not. I will not stand for people saying she has a fake leg. Too. She could have had one for the you scene. You take that back. But no, I think I think he's just right behind her, and you know, and there's and it's it's a set, obviously, right? So he's. I think he's just like pressed up against her, and Kermit is, you know, is 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 on her, and and his arm is just like very, it's just very close, and she's very tiny, and I think her legs are crossed to sort of help the illusion, but it's a really good yeah. illusion, yeah, and and it, it to the point where I questioned how they were doing it for a second, and it's so simple, and also like the stillness it requires on both her part and Jim Henson's part to pull that off and to be comfortable doing it, like it's it's as skillful as the crocodile stick um, in a different way, yeah. And and what Chrissy said is totally right. I mean, Jim, the, the, what he does with that number and just the smallest movement of Kermit's head, he doesn't overdo it, but you can, it's, you're just watching Kermit be so invested and, and listening to Sandy and connecting to the song. And Jim is doing so little, you know, that's why he was a genius. Is it canon time? Ready! Three, two, one! That sound means that we've arrived at our shot out of a cannon section where we discuss some of the segments that became canonical to the Muppet show. And also some of the segments that we just uh, couldn't find another spot for, because <laughs> there were a couple of sketches in here that uh, were not musical numbers and were not canon, but here they are. Hi, ho, I'm in a great mood tonight. And that's because our special guest star is a real good friend and a lovely lady, Miss Sandy Duncan. And so that means our show tonight should be a real bang-up affair. Did somebody say bang? Uh, no. <laughs> yes, with his signature, did somebody say bang? That's always a mistake on The Muppet Show, saying bang, saying bomb. Uh, Kermit ends up in Statler and Waldorf's box, and Fozzie has to do the intro for him. Well, somebody's got to introduce our guest star, so it might as well be the old Fozzie. Okay. Here she is, a star who does it all. She sings, she dances, she acts, and she makes you feel good all over. Miss Sandy Duncan! Any thoughts on what makes you feel good all over means if you're Fozzie Bear? Belly rubs. Ear scratches. Yeah, that sounds right. They're just both so 70s. Both those intros are so, like, 70s variety show. She's, she's a triple threat. <laughs> sings, dances, makes you feel good all over. Makes you feel like seven shots and a bump of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, was for the time, did she have sex appeal? Like, were there people who looked at Sandy Duncan and were like, sex? I mean, or, or, I think I think you're asking the wrong crowd, but I'm I'm gonna guess yes. I, because to me, she just comes across so much as like girl next door, like you want to take care of her, you want her to babysit you, not like uh I I don't I don't see like Rita Moreno, right. you see the sex appeal. Sandy Duncan, to me, it, like even when she rips her skirt off, like it's it's showmanship. It's not sex. Yeah, I, I'm saying, did you miss that part? She she played she played a prepubescent boy on Broadway, right? <laughs> but I mean, those legs, like even as a gay man, like they go all the way down to those the ground, are some gams. and then they go up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So knowing that Sandy makes you feel good all over. Here we have <laughs> the Swedish chef making donuts. Donut. <laughs> yep, that's all you need. Uh, 
That is how the Swedish chef says the word donut. Here is how the Swedish chef makes donuts. He takes an English muffin, points out to you that it's an English muffin, tosses it up in the air, and he gets out his blunderbuss, and there you go. Voila, donuts. Those are those are terrible donuts. <laughs> right. So there's no sugar or anything. It's just Jeez. a muffin. So why are the English muffins and not crumpets? Like we've already well established that the Muppets have crumpets. Right. right? But English muffins and, are crumpets, so that's redundant. Well, so you might think so because they look similar, but when I dared to say on Twitter that English muffins and crumpets are the same thing, I got a lot of angry bakers in my mentions telling me that no, they are very different. I, I do not understand what the difference is, but I believe them. But also, this just speaks to like the goyishness of the Muppet Show writing staff that he puts a hole in an English muffin and the answer is donut and not bagel. Right. If this were, if the Muppet Show were filmed in New York, it would have been bagels. Fair. The next canonical segment we've got is at the dance. Uh, there are some chuckle worthy gags in this sketch, and uh, we've had some discussions about what is and isn't a tango. I would just. Uh, like anybody who's curious to know that this week's At the Dance music is the same music, but it is uh, set as a tango, which is confusing, but possible. I'll also let you know that the only thing I ever want to watch just over and over again forever is Animal and his dance partner falling for each other. You know, I'm falling for you. What can I do? Get out of the way! Ah! Ah! Want to join me? Yeah. Ah! Backwards. Ah! Excuse me, sideways. Ah! <laughs> I just love it so much. <laughs> Animal's so coherent in this. Like, it, it, is Animal in the Muppet Show more coherent than I remember? Because my animal in my head is Muppet Takes Manhattan Animal. I think he gets less coherent over time, yeah. It goes back and forth. Um, you were talking earlier about Muppy being suddenly able to sing. And there are numbers in season one where Animal is used as a random backup singer, singing, you know, <laughs> complex Candor and Ebb lyrics. And it's like, I don't think Animal can handle that. I, I did wonder about that. When we watched the Joel Grey episode, it, it crossed my mind. Animal uh, is an animal of mystery. He apparently can speak sometimes. And we learned in the Rita Moreno episode that he understands Spanish, at least. So he's multilingual. I think maybe Animal is actually among the smartest of the Muppets and could speak totally standard English if he wanted to and chooses not to. <laughs> Yeah, or he's like Chewbacca, right? He understands it, but for whatever reason, can't speak it. Yeah, except for here. He just lost the ability after this episode. In our next sketch, we've got Sandy Duncan giving Sweetums a little speech. Sweetums is in the doldrum. Whenever anybody sees him, people hide. They scream monster. Dogs bite him. Flowers wilt. We see that very evocatively. But Sandy Duncan uh, working her magic, and she's wearing this aggressively floral choker. And now that we've been at this for a few weeks... When I see that choker, I wonder whether it's hiding her seam. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what necklaces are there to do. <laughs> She's got this flower coming out of where her Adam's apple would be. Sandy Duncan convinces Sweetums that beauty is found within, and he shuffles off. And then she finds Behemoth in Behemoth's first appearance. And he's wearing uh, pants and eyebrows, which he does not usually wear. And he will shed both of them later. Because who needs pants or eyebrows when you can respond to Sandy Duncan telling you to cheer up by 
pieing her smack in the face. I love it so much. And Sandy Duncan loves it too. She's just so delighted to be there. And she like tosses the foam back at him and she giggles and seems surprised to have been pied in the face. It's just delightful. It's such a great bit of, of, of puppetry too, where when she calls him ugly, which is like, it's okay that you're ugly. <laughs> you're beautiful on the inside. And he just, he just reacts. And it's because I don't think his eyebrows move or anything. It's just like, he just goes back a little bit. Takes it in. Because, because he's offended. And then as he, he should be. Well, yeah. And, but Sweetums, <laughs> like Sweetums wasn't right. That's like the bit was it worked on Sweetums. And then this guy is like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and then like, if yeah. you, you know, if you know what's going on, you see him reach down out of camera frame to get the pie like as the camera zooms in closer on her, it's just also cleverly crafted in a sketch that's kind of boring, but I was like so delighted by the the punchline of it. And and like, they're just fun, like Sweetums and Behemoth are just fun to look at. And another development in a, in a character's way of speaking is that the last time, at least if you're going in this order, that you saw Sweetums was in the Rita Moreno episode, and he's still talking like an ogre from Frog Prince. You know, nice lady not want Sweetums to hold cue cards. And now he's had elocution lessons in the last week and he can speak like a normal monster with full sentences and everything. And and he never reverts. He never goes back to his original ogre fractured sentences. So good job, Sweetums. You, you've done well. Well, I mean, until the Muppet movie. Well, uh, that is true. Jack not named. Jack job. But what's also interesting is that we have sort of a a neat puppetry upgrade for Sweetums in this bit. And because he is speaking more eloquently, Richard Hunt wanted to be able to do better mouth movements for the lip sync. So he's moving the mouth with his right hand, which normally he doesn't do because normally his right hand is, is Sweetums right hand. So if you watch carefully, Sweetums right hand in this sketch is just a dead right hand. um, That's sort of like tucked in on his lap so that Richard Hunt can move his mouth. Well, now we know. I thought that was neat. That is neat. What a great bunch of nerds. Uh, I think that most of what we had to say about the talk spot we got through when we were talking about the banana sketch. And the news flash is just uh, a little clip of Sandy Duncan jumping up and down and saying that she's done it 652,000 times. Do we have anything else on the the talk spot or the news flash? I just, I didn't remember that the news flash sometimes included the guest star and then after I watched this episode and saw that, I looked it up and saw that, oh, no, this happens occasionally. They're just less memorable to me than the other ones. Yeah, only, only in season one. Yeah, it's a cute little more of an SNL style thing than what feels like a Muppet Show thing. But it is a thing that happens. I like the idea. I didn't think it was very funny, but I, you know, I'm, I'm here for incorporating the guests into Muppet things as much as possible. Veterinarian's Hospital. Dr. Bob drops his watch into a patient. I don't think that's funny. <laughs> nope. And the jokes weren't very funny. I thought this Vets Hospital and at the Dance are two of my favorite things. And Animal Aside, I thought this was a pretty weak <laughs> at the dance. There's I didn't Animal Aside, that's like the whole thing. <laughs> but like, but there are other jokes and they weren't funny. There I didn't write it down. There was one joke I just fully didn't understand. I was like, this joke doesn't make any sense. And um, and I just it was a really weak vet hospital and I was sad. Alas. Also, the narrator is not Jerry Nelson, and that also made me sad. Yeah, it's John John Lovelady. That's my assumption every time that something isn't the person I expect it to be. I'm like, ah, John Lovelady. There's a few episodes right in the middle of season one where Jerry Nelson couldn't be in England, 
So you'll notice a, a long stretch where you'll have no Floyd. You'll have no, well, I mean, that was kind of his only big season one character, but he won't be there for incidental characters either. So we're stuck with love lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for when we will have to miss Jerry Nelson in the middle of the season. And he was um, also, he also missed the first three that they made because he was wrapping up Sesame Street. So he was just in and out, in and out. Uh, I think we also tackled Fozzie and uh, his uh, getting heckled in the banana sketch. But we have one line that I, I I think this is a contender for most of its time moment of the week. But I want to ask you guys what this means. Hey, my wife loves children, but I can't bear them. <laughs> hey, we got three kids, one of each. So I love this line because... It's a triple pun on I can't bear them because it's like, I can't bear them. Oh. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I my just job got is the done. bear the animal joke, not the bear children joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's much funnier now. Oh, yeah. Um, I also, the you know, we have three children, one of each, I believe in 1976 was a har har. There's only two kinds of children. But I'm I'm choosing to read it as a very progressive joke about there being three or more genders. That's that's the choice that I'm making in 2021. All right, this is going to lose out on most of its time moment of the week to a Statler and Waldorf clip. Oh yeah, I think this wins. Yeah, you know she makes me feel like a young boy. <laughs> yeah, she makes me feel like a young girl. I think I'll go find one. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, oh, uh, what will Astoria think? <laughs> What indeed? That's we got a, a long way to go. get to Disney. She's not in the picture yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, he got married in an advanced age. So we are approaching the end of our time together. Does anyone have final thoughts or things that didn't fit in anywhere else in our discussion? It's it's still you know thirty something years after I first saw it as a wee little baby gay. It's still one of my very favorite episodes. It just makes me feel good all over. I think that's a lovely note to end on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, tell your family, and tell strangers on the internet by leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy.